Hello, and welcome to the Learn, Lead, and Thrive podcast, part of the 2017 National Association of Chronic Disease Directors President's Challenge. I'm your host, Dr. Mehul Dalal, and today we're going to be talking about leading through change with our guest expert, Dr. Mark Lipton. We'll be getting into some very timely topics in this episode. If you're interested in how leaders face ambiguity, handle disruption, manage uncertainty, and the translation of private sector insights to our public sector world, stay tuned in. Mark Lipton is a professor of management at the New School in, at, in New York City and has served as an advisor and consultant to private and public sector organizations, including the CDC. He has written for premier publications such as the Harvard Business Review and the MIT Sloan Management Review. His most recent book, Guiding Growth, How Vision Keeps Companies on Course, was published by the Harvard Business School Press, and his forthcoming book, Mean Men, will examine the intersection of cruelty and leadership. Well, I'll let Mark explain that further if we have time, but that seems like a rather well-timed book, and I'll leave it my comments there. A number of years ago, I had the privilege of going through a longitudinal leadership development course led by Mark that certainly has a lasting influence on my thinking around professional growth and leadership. So I'm really appreciative of the opportunity to speak to him again and learn from his insights. Mark, welcome to the show. Is there anything that you want to add to that introduction? It's a wonderful introduction. Thank you, Mayhul. Yeah, I really, I, I think the only thing I would underline was my enjoyment and insight having worked with so many public health people around the country. And I miss it. So I learned a great deal about leadership. And, and as you mentioned earlier, the, the intersection that the way in which middle and upper level public health leaders need to operate in, in some ways is converging with what we're learning in the private sector and, and in the not-for-profit sectors. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to diving in and talking a little bit more about that. So can you start us off with a bit of an overview around change and disruption in the private sector context? And then maybe you can talk a little bit how that applies to the public sector and what we can learn from that. Sure. In the last two years, particularly, I've been focusing my research on this notion of disruption. And I think it's fairly unavoidable to be working in any organization and that word not floating to the surface in, in many conversations. What we've been looking at particularly is how CEOs of very large, complex organizations are thinking about disruption. I had this notion that they were bolting upright in bed at three in the morning, thinking that tomorrow I'm going to be Uberized or Netflixed or Amazon or something like that. And I was curious how they were thinking about it, strategizing, what were they doing to better prepare their organizations so that they would not have to undergo a very traumatic transformation to, to adapt to it. And some of the findings were really almost counterintuitive to us and, um, Hopefully we can get into to some of that today. One of the big ones is that we, we're now seeing disruption very differently from the way Harvard professor Clay Christensen has envisioned disruption where an organization has to go through a, a major transformation every so many years because of some big technological shift that has completely upended their business model. We're, we're seeing something very different these days. And while it may be more prominent in the private for profit sector, I think we're going to see far more rapid cycle time of, of disruptions in the public sector too. Certainly we're living through 
forces of disruption that are going to be impacting the public sector momentarily, I think. <laughs> yeah, for, for those listening to the podcast, we're recording this at a time where a new administration has just assumed the office of the presidency, and it's very unclear what the administration's priorities are around, at least what the implications are about the priorities around public health funding. Yeah, it's very a very timely conversation. So can you talk a little bit more about this new environment the private sector is facing around disruption? Can you refer to an old model of disruption, but there's, I think what you're talking about is a newer model of disruption, and then we'll try to draw some parallels to the, to the public sector. Sure. So the way in which we, normative way of seeing disruption in the private sector was Clay Christensen has told us through many articles and many books over the last 15 years is that, you know, it, it goes in a cycle of every five years or so, and particularly dramatic for technology companies where they're not adapting. And I won't spend our time getting into his model, but what we're seeing is that this cycle of disruption is happening at a extraordinarily greater speed. And the way in which CEOs are now thinking about it is not you know, okay, I've adjusted my organization to new technology and digital revolution, and and we're pretty set for the next few years, and then we'll start thinking about it again. That's gone. What's happening now is a mindset that is not just residing at the CEO or the C-suite level, but very much feels like a very bold statement to say, but it's what, what emerged from the data was a new leadership model. And we were struck at how these CEOs were telling us in very intimate conversations that they are preparing their organizations for what we're calling micro-revolutions, that it's not a major shift every few years to adapt the organization, but an ongoing process that may sound head-spinning at first, but the yeah. way in which they're realigning their organizations to manage this constant whitewater and stay afloat is nothing short of a, a new leadership model for us to think about. So it's been, it's been exciting. It's been insightful to me because I work across all sectors and I can see the value of it, not just big Fortune 250 publicly owned companies, but I see the value in government where we can't deny that the digital revolution is on its way in many public sector organizations, if it's not already taken hold, it will very, very soon. And clearly we're seeing much of it in the, in the nonprofit sector and, and the international NGO sector as well. Yeah, it strikes me that from your comments that from my vantage point in the public sector middle management area is the themes of uncertainty, ambiguity, and how connected to other sectors may also play a role in the, in the most certainly play a role in the private sector. And uh, there's probably some insights to be gained around, around how private sector leaders address those issues. Mm -hmm. You know, it may be helpful just to tick off a couple of the characteristics we found. We actually surfaced five characteristics. So this is kind of an early peak preview of this. We're about to be publishing the results in a few months. One thing we found is the concept that is not new, but has not really taken hold and is not discussed uh, virtually at all in the United States. It's something that management researchers have been diving into quite deeply over in Europe. It's this notion of 
the ambidextrous organization. And by that, I mean organizations, and, and we can, and for the audience listening, um, we, we think of the organization as your listeners and what they manage and boundaries in which they may have influence, if not control, but at least influence. There is the ability to create a far more ambidextrous organization. And ambidexterity is um, kind of deals with, uh, uh, it's kind of left hand, right hand, um, but in a, in a cognitive way for leaders to think about doing two almost paradoxical things simultaneously and creating within their organizational unit the capacity to, first of all, optimize. And I think, you know, many folks in the public sector and middle and upper middle level management positions um, have no choice but to optimize, to squeeze efficiencies wherever they can and to look for opportunities where um, more can be done with fewer resources. Mm-hmm. The other side of, of optimization is exploration. And it's quite different because it's high risk. Exploration is about uh, taking chances, experimenting, going after new initiatives, knowing that there may be a more than reasonable or comfortable level of failure and this thing could flop. But we learn from it. And ambidextrous organizations and the leaders who create these organizations are able to balance both of those oppositional characteristics simultaneously. Not an easy feat, but what we're seeing as the, the, the preeminent characteristic of this new leadership model is this capacity to build an ambidextrous um, to, to lead ambidextrous, <laughs> it's a long word, ambidexterily. Now, what's different, a couple of management professors at Harvard Business School actually coined the term about 15 years ago, and their belief was that ambidexterity could only happen if you create what used to be called skunk work. So you had one unit that ran, you know, and you, you worked very hard to optimize, to squeeze your efficiencies, to look for more efficient ways of achieving your mandate. And when you wanted to experiment, well, that was done by somebody else in another location where the organizational culture was set up for it. And up until recently, that's been the notion of how to manage with ambidexterity, that you could not do it within the same located organization because Mm -hmm. the assumption was that the cultures would be so different. The culture that is more comfortable with exploring and risk-taking may not live well with efficiency maximization. And what we're hearing from all of these very in-depth, intimate interviews is really something quite different, what's called contextual ambidexterity. The, the, The other one I had noted is referred to as structural ambidexterity, where you create two different structures in the same organization, one to seek efficiencies, the other one to take risks. Here, what we're hearing are leaders creating organizations where both can, can and do coexist simultaneously. And that was a head spinner for us. And it, it seems to defy convention in, in the academic literature in management organization because scholars were saying even 10, 15 years ago, you can't do that. 
And we're seeing that these leaders now are, this is the number, the A1 priority for them is to create these contextually based ambidextrous organizations that simultaneously squeeze efficiencies and take risks. So I guess if I were to restate it, and you can correct me if I'm not restate, because I'm trying to draw it back to the public sector. So this is, mm-hmm. this is a way that innovation and exploration is baked into the day-to-day operations of these, these organizations. Is that, is that a fair way to summarize it? It's a very accurate way. That's precisely yeah. it. Thank you. Yes. Like the day-to-day operations, kind of the micro processes that drive our work, there needs to be some sort of, uh, you know, kind of outlook or philosophy or approach that, you know, maybe we can do this a little bit different or maybe we can do it, do it better. Uh, in some ways, I almost feel that the public sector model where we are our main stakeholders, are our funders and those who we provide services to, we, we really don't have that model of structural ambidextrity, if I'm saying that correctly, because we almost are forced to innovate within our current structures. So I'm wondering if this is something that might apply uh, sort of at a baseline to, to public sector work. I don't know if you have any comments on that. I think it facilitates the application of this to public sector organizations, because as you noted, you you don't have the option. (laughs) There is no option of going off and creating another unit that is charged and far more comfortable with, with taking risks and exploring. So the challenge is how do we, how do we do this all together? And my, my own personal experience working, you know, with, with public sector clients is that this could be a hugely motivating initiative, enormously motivating. If there's the recognition that yes, we have to, we have to charge through and constantly seek efficiencies and doing more with less, but the motivating factor uh, that I've experienced in the public sector particularly is in loosening up the freedom for people to seek to seek ways of of solving the problems of 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 leapfrogging and, and accomplishing far more than you do now by considering much more creative approaches. And again, that comes with risk and the public sector likes to minimize risk. So nonetheless, we've seen and I've seen over the decades many, many public sector leaders and not necessarily at the top, mid level in yeah. large lumbering bureaucracies who who are able to really identify the boundaries of, of their influence and, and get the culture realigned to do these things. And they find, and that's where the, probably the biggest source of motivation of professionals working within these units comes from, the think more broadly. Yeah, I think that's so key that what you mentioned about identifying the boundaries of influence. I think many, many folks in the public sector sort of end up in this learned helplessness. You know, they're, they're faced with a fairly stringent bureaucracy, a lot of a lot of activity that asks you know, that requires them to ask for permission to do things and, and a long approval process. But I think, you know, if we, if we think creatively about it, I think our boundaries of influence extend beyond. I've certainly had experience working in, you know, public health departments where they really did want to push the boundaries of what was possible. And there was a, there was a, a culture of taking risks and doing innovative uh, projects around public health. I know we, that was just one characteristics and I, I didn't <laughs> want to leave time for the other, <laughs> for the others. So yeah, but, why don't we, why don't we jump into the others and maybe we can revisit some of this first one. Cause that one seems almost, uh, you know, kind of foundational. Sure. It's foundational. It certainly jumped out as the, the number one. 
The second one we're, we're calling the need to create emotional fortitude. And we experience these leaders as demonstrating what we think of as this grounded audacity. It wasn't hubris. It wasn't, you know, my way or the highway. But emotional fortitude is really having this very crystal clear view of the world that he or she faces. But it also requires an, an equally clear vision about how, how much he or she wants to change that view. So clearly this, not biased by, but it's felt familiar to me because of, of my last book on organizational vision and the need for that and the value to it. But what these CEOs were telling us was it goes beyond vision. It goes beyond this clear view of not just what we want to accomplish within our organizations, but a deeply held internal emotional conviction, knowing, as they would say, knowing I've got to back up my words with deeds. Mm -hmm. My behavior has to be consistent. And if I'm going to create an ambidextrous organization, for example, I've got to be out front and to have relative comfort in me making mistakes personally as a leader, but also with me saying, hey, we got to try this and encouraging people to take a stab at well thought through, but potentially higher risk initiatives. So mm -hmm. it, it's managing a healthy ego that really has the outcome of supporting you know, one's personal legitimacy in the organization as a leader. And we're still trying to get our arms around this notion of, of emotional fortitude, but we saw it as very essential in their leadership effectiveness. And again, it's, it, it doesn't cross over the line of narcissism or hubris, but, but a, a conviction and living, living that conviction and as, as they execute the organizational vision. A third one, also quite insightful to us, something we weren't expecting. There was, as one would expect, you know, there was the strong suggestions uh, or imperative that we have to focus on, you know, the quality of talent, continually developing talent, recruiting the best talent, creating a culture that supports the best work that these people can do. Mm -hmm. But it was, it went beyond that. And as we teased through the data, um, we understood it as these leaders feeling so strongly about how they rank the, the criticality of talent and culture that we realized that what they were doing is they take a pause, whether it's annually or semi-annually, they take a pause and step back and think about if I were to create an entirely new organization, how would I do things differently? And it's almost this Zen Buddhism notion of uh, Shoshin, the beginner's mind, where mm -hmm. stepping back and saying, let me in my mind wipe the slate clean here. And sometimes they do this with their, their senior management group and not get completely shackled by the status quo and the way things are done. But even within the constraints of public sector leadership, where, where there may be more rules and more, the, the culture may be more unrelenting in telling leaders, this is the way you have to do things. 
to really clear the mind and think about if we were to start over, again, within our bounds of influence, what would we do differently? And we're seeing this quite profoundly with the CEOs of these highly complex global organizations. Mm -hmm. And I cannot help but see not just the value, but the facility of leaders in the public sector in the middle, being able to adapt some characteristics of this, this notion of, of beginner's mind and not being so hamstrung by the status quo, particularly as it relates to, you know, how do we think about talent? How do we think about culture and getting the norms and the values of our culture aligned to make sure the talent can just be let free to really do uh, what they have the potential to accomplish? I'll just interject for a second. I think that's a really good insight and very practical. In fact, we had two episodes of this podcast that touched on some of those issues. One, we did an entire podcast on succession planning, succession management. And in fact, it went beyond just sort of inventorying skills, but really connecting the succession management plan with the, with the strategic plan of the organization. And the other one, we look, we ta- I talked to Dr. Ross Brownson, who is a public health researcher. And again, he identified organization culture as one of the key modifiable evidence-based practices in terms of administering successful public health organizations. So this, this ties right into that. That's fascinating because that's, that's coming from another very different source of, yeah. of raising the importance of that. That, that is fascinating. Yeah, well, it's, it's not easy in terms of changing organizational culture, but I do feel that it is something that is under our sphere of influence. I think whether, whether you acknowledge it or not, whether it's implicit or explicit, folks in middle management supervisory roles are having a pretty profound impact on the culture of how their teams and, and at least their units operate. Yeah. Did you want to finish up on number three? Because I think we, we'll have to take a bit of a break here and come back and hit the other two. Uh, uh, oh, any okay. final no. comments on number three? No, I'm fine with number three. Um, I just didn't want to lose the opportunity of providing the the second to the last two. Oh yeah, sure. No problem. We're going to take a quick break here and return and take a look at the other two and then maybe revisit some of the ones that resonate most with our public sector roles. Uh, So uh, stay with us. Hi, this is Dr. Mehul Dalal with a quick break here. I know in the day-to-day bustle of work, it's not easy to study and apply leadership best practices. I also know that leadership is not about a particular individual who happens to be in a supervisory position. It's about working together to identify and cultivate these skills and capacities in each other and at all levels of the organization. Leadership skills should be foundational to all public health professionals as our field confronts change both from within and without. It's my hope that this year's National Association of Chronic Disease Directors President's Challenge, Learn, Lead, and Thrive, will draw attention to best practices, industry-leading thinking, and most importantly, practical advice on how to implement these concepts and techniques in our daily work. Please tune into other episodes of this podcast where I talk with leading experts tackling important questions around professional development, succession planning, managing up, job satisfaction, and more. We've lined up exciting conversations with folks like Dr. Ursula Bauer, Dr. Jean Alonji, Dr. Mark Lipton, Professor of Management at the New School, Drs. Amy Rizniewski and David Berg, both professors at Yale, and Dr. Ross Brownson of Washington University. To access the podcast, go to the National Association of Chronic Disease Directors' President's Challenge webpage found at chronicdisease.org, where you'll also find links and resources related to this and other podcasts in this series. Now back to the show. 
Okay, welcome back. Now let's pick it right up and get into the last two of the five characteristics, and then maybe we'll take some time to, to review and summarize those. Mark, we ended on number run the number three, so let's dive into number four. Yeah. So, in and these were in order of frequency of how we heard them, and I, I don't want to say we only heard five things. We we heard about forty items, um, but. Through the data analysis, we really distilled it down to the five most most powerful, frequent uh, items, and the ones where we actually put a value on. You know, what was the degree of passion these these men and women felt when they talked about these things? The the fourth was a notion of harnessing the actual forces of disruption. So, rather than running away from or uh, putting up defenses to disruption. They, they leaned right into it, and they actually put on their agenda looking around for disruption in other organizations, perhaps in other pockets of their own organization, and hijacking those disruptions in thoroughly legitimate ways. And so it was really about you know, how, what's going on in the world that could be a competitive threat to us, and what can we learn from them that we can adapt and put into our own organization and make ourselves not necessarily disruptive to others, but highly effective. So there was kind of a jujitsu thing going on where they, they were constantly scanning the environment for new disruptive ways of approaching challenges and, and their business model. <clears throat> this too I see as relevant to public sector managers because when I work with groups of middle, upper, middle-level public sector leaders, I'm often struck at, again, you know, this reliance, because I think the culture, the culture really emphasizes it, but a reliance on the status quo and this is, this is the way we've always done things around here, rather than putting on binoculars or whatever metaphor we want to use, but, but widening the lens and seeing what else is going on? What are other people doing? So it may not be narrowly within your professional field of interest, but even you know more widely across public health, for example, you know are there very new approaches being taken that, with some insight and creativity on the part of a management team, they could think about hmm you know, folks over in L.A. are doing it this way or mm -hmm. they're doing it this way in Boston to approach something very different from what we're involved with. How might we be able to harness those disruptions and bring them into our shop to make us more effective? So it's not, I think the, the lesson here was not avoiding or running away from <clears throat> what others are doing <laughs> that we may find threatening, pardon me, but to actually bring them into the organization. And finally, we were finding and struck by the ways in which these leaders were becoming truly cultural anthropologists. They were, they were looking at their, the end user of the work that they were engaged with and being end user ethnographers and understanding the subtleties of the ultimate recipient of the work that we do going all the way to that end user, understanding in a very intimate way how they may use or do use the results of our efforts, our services, mm -hmm. perhaps policies, uh, 
interventions that we may emerge from our work, but looking so closely at that end user. Because the reality that we're just starting to understand in the last decade or so is we don't really look as closely, perhaps as we should, at the very, very end user of all of the work that we do, you know, and what more can we learn about them that they may not be telling us. Yeah. And we've heard really remarkable stories about how leaders were approaching the collection of this kind of data, if you will. It certainly is data, but it's at a very personal, intimate level. So that was the fifth piece. They, they really were becoming end-user ethnographers. And I wonder, I'm very curious what your thought is of that one um, as you think about our audience. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I mean, I think from the public sector standpoint, it's important to identify and define who our end users are. Probably varies depending on the programs and services that we're offering. But one insight that I thought was really interesting from what you just mentioned is treating our, you know, if we define our customers broadly, meaning potentially our partners that are benefiting from working with us or even our funders, one insight that I don't think we'd give enough thought to is what, are they, what is their experience in interacting with us? Like, what do they want to gain from our, the interaction? In that sense, I think, you know, we have a lot of customers and not being sort of a, a product-driven for-profit company, our, our work isn't going to necessarily suffer. And this might be unfortunate, but if our ultimate end-user experience isn't kind of as optimal as it could be. But I do think there's many customer bases that we need to, we need to keep in mind and thinking about their experience in interacting with us and working with us as sort of a user experience, I think that's an interesting insight to potentially apply to our work. Yeah, that, that sounds highly relevant. And, yeah. and in the spirit of, of what these corporate folks were telling us, absolutely. I did want to explore, I know we cut our discussion short a little bit on the ambidextrous organization. I think we covered a lot of work there, but I did want to get back to that for, for maybe a couple of minutes. I guess I'll try to frame a question for you or a comment for you, and maybe you can react to it. And you might even be explained this better than I could. But the idea of an innovator's dilemma, which is, I believe, I think more primarily in the private sector, is that when a company establishes its product, its customer base, it sets a pretty high set of expectations, a sort of entrenched set of expectations of what that company is going to be providing. And that company, when put under pressure to innovate, to do something new, risks alienating that customer base or you know, product entrenched product stakeholder group as it tries to innovate. And I've, I've heard about this concept in the public sector, in the private sector, but I, it strikes me that it could apply to the private sector as well. We just have a different set of stakeholders we're dealing with. So if you think of our main customer base or our main stakeholder group as our funders, in many cases, those are federal funders, potentially state public funds, you have sort of an established set of stakeholders and expectations as to what is going to happen with the dollars that they give you. So if you try to innovate using those resources, you may risk alienating that group. So that's a dilemma in terms of leaders and managers that want to, are, are interested in this idea of innovation and the ambidextrous organization. So I, I don't know if you want to comment or react to that. <laughs> <laughs> so a couple of comments. Sure. Thank you. Uh, the notion of innovators dilemma is actually Clay Christensen's term. And you captured it precisely that, you know, do I wait? Do I keep what seems to be working for me? not make any waves and just ride this thing as long as we can? 
And yet, if I do, I risk being disrupted because somebody out there may come up with another model and, again, in the corporate sector, kill me on price or kill me on some technological feature. While it still may be a service or product that's not nearly as high quality as what I'm offering, and that's the dilemma. And what we're finding is that we don't believe that you've presented a very interesting illustration here, and I'm not going to try to charge through it with equal forces. I might corporate, for example, consumer. Mm -hmm. but, But what we're hearing from these folks, and as we step back and understand what they were telling us and understanding the different markets in which they they're, they're serving the dilemma the speed of the dilemma is picked up so it's it's not just how long can i ride this wave and i think what what you're saying Michael, is how long this is the way things are and this is the expectation of the people who fund us so using the innovators dilemma model it's let's not rock the boat here and exactly what they want. And what the lesson that we're learning from all of these characteristics, really, not just the first one, ambidexterity, but the others which undergird ambidexterity and certainly reinforce and bring it to life, much of that is disrupting segments of who we work with They're not, that don't expect us to be the disruptor. So I I guess where I'm leading with this is can members of your audience through the organizations that they represent and the influence and innovation that they can elevate, can they disrupt the way in which things are done right now in terms of how you get funding or the way in which programs, policies, initiatives are evaluated? Is there a way to create a revolution? We talk about micro-revolutions, but right. are there ways to start creating micro-revolutions, which may seem very small and not disruptive, but in their totality could be disruptive to the very people you depend on? I'm not sure if I'm clear on that one. Does that make sense? I can take that around the block again if you want, but it's, I, uh, it's disrupting upwards. Uh-huh. Outwards. Yeah. Well, I guess what what came to mind for me, and it's a very uh, it's a it's an example that's facing a lot of us in the chronic disease prevention field, is that there's been a as there's been an emphasis on policies, preventions, uh, prevention, working with healthcare systems, there's been a simultaneous push among healthcare systems, both through payment models which incentivize prevention, and also thought leaders uh, saying that healthcare systems should move into the prevention space. There's been really exactly what we had would talked about, uh, another sector that's taking over, quote unquote, taking over some of the work that public health has been doing all along. In all honesty, it's a much more powerful sector. It's a much more well-funded sector. It, in fact, in some cases may even do a better job if they're able to build prevention-oriented healthcare system as part of their business model. So it's something that we're actually faced with. It's not just, as, I guess my point was, it's not just something that's faced in the private sector, it's something that we face in the public sector as well. Fascinating. Not surprising, yeah. but not very fascinating. And, and could you envision down the road an acknowledgement that, yeah, there are other segments of the economy that can do as good, if not perhaps a somewhat better job than we. And we somewhat, we start somewhat redefining what our purpose is, why we're here. 
Yeah, and I, th I think that comment is going to resonate with a lot of the audience members. I think we've gone through multiple, a number of years where we're, in some cases, still trying to define our role with it within the healthcare system. So uh, I'll leave it at that. I think that's a, that's a discussion for another day, a very interesting <laughs> discussion for another day. But we are getting close to being out of time here. In fact, we probably ran a little over, but this was such an interesting conversation that, that that's fine. And the podcast format allows to be a little bit loose with time. But before we close out, I want to circle back and ask you if there's anything we missed or anything you'd like to expand on on the items that we talked about. I think uh, there's a one item theme that I'd like to underline, which is sure. uh, while this current study featured subjects that your audience may think of as, whoa, you know, they are so different from my world, the, the underline here is that, yeah, these men and women are in very different roles in, in different organizations, but we were struck by five characteristics, and we could not we could not find examples where they could not be applied across multiple sectors. And I think for me, that's a really important point. This is not just limited to big complex corporations, these undisruptible characteristics. They're fully implementable you know, across all sectors. I think it, it simply takes a little more emotional fortitude perhaps <laughs> to try sure. to <laughs> I think a lot of folks here have that already just by virtue of being working here in others. <laughs> that would be my um, guess. So how, my experience working with some of your colleagues, yeah. Yeah. So that 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 and, that's the important and, point to me, to not write this off because it to, the data comes out of a very different organizational context. Sure, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Sometimes we're too siloed in our thinking, and and we lose some in fantastic insights. And that's part of the purpose of this episode and this podcast is trying to draw those insights from other sectors and see it sticks here. So, if if folks wanted to find out more about your work, Mark, how, how can they do that? They may visit my website at marklipton.com. That's the best part at the moment, and there'll be a new website going up shortly for the release of the new book. Uh, oh, great. And, but marklipton.com is the best landing place at the moment. And my blog is there, too. There are a number of ways of accessing my blog, but um, the blog is, is always up on that site. Sure thing. Thank you very much for being our guest today. Thank you so much for the invite. It's thoroughly enjoyable. Great. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in today's Learn, Lead, and Thrive podcast, where we covered a lot of territory. We looked at five leadership characteristics, and I'm just going to recap them here. The ambidextrous organization, emotional fortitude, adopting a beginner's mindset, harnessing the forces of disruption, and becoming a cultural anthropologist. I think these are really interesting terms to apply, to look, explore a little further about these insights from the private sector and Think intentionally about how this can apply to your daily work. I, I think there's definitely some areas that we can look at. I think one of the interesting things we talked about is the user experience and how we can be better about creating a better user experience for our stakeholders. And we also talked about the integrating this idea of, of innovation and efficiency into all aspects of our unit. I think that's something that as a public sector, we're, we're actually in some way set up to do better than, than others it's simply because we don't have to create a, a separate unit that does innovation. 
So this podcast is all about exploring credible and actionable ideas and concepts. So the next step is up to you, the listener. So please download and review the articles and the tools and find a way to integrate these ideas and practices in your daily work. So thank you for listening and tune in to other podcasts in this series where we'll be continuing the conversation with leaders and experts.